Hello and welcome to another episode of The Wannabe Entrepreneur, the podcast about what's really like to bootstrap a company. And today I, I have another interview for the listeners, for The Wannabe Entrepreneurs. I have with me Olu. Hey, Olu. Thank you so much for joining. Hey, how are you doing, Tiago? Thanks so much for having me. No, it's my pleasure. It's uh, really nice to always meet other bootstrappers and to learn about their stories. And uh, today we are going to learn about uh, Prello, the startup, the project that uh, Olu is the main founder of. And uh, he's also, he kind of made the move from a full-time job to being a bootstrapper. And I'm sure there's a lot of cool stories to tell there. And uh, I'm excited to learn more. So yeah, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, let's let's get started. I would start by asking you, Olu, to do a little quick introduction about yourself. In your own words, who is Olu? Um, I, I, you know, basically started this um, journey last year, um, Prello, and um, and it's been an amazing journey so far. I um, have a wife and a, and a daughter. I've been in technology perhaps for about you know two decades or so, and it's been uh, it's been an amazing journey. Um, started life in investment banking, okay. um, did that for quite some time, and then moved on into the startup space. So great to be here, and uh, thanks for having me, Tiago. So you, I guess you started investment banking, very different kind of job, very stressful, I'd say. Was that the reason why why you moved? towards the uh, you know, bootstrapping entrepreneur in following this entrepreneur path? Interesting. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, investment banking typically is stressful, right? So I, I started in, in investment banking in the sort of mid to late 90s. I started actually as a C++, C++ programmer. Okay. And we were building, um, you know, sort of risk strategies in the commodities and derivatives, um, you know, space really mm-hmm. um and and yeah no i mean typically banking is is quite stressful anyway uh, really sort of demanding long hours and um and and just you know you're, you're always challenging yourself and you know one of the reasons why why i moved after having been in banking for probably about 20 years was really because i just wanted something different i wanted a, a change of scenery and i wanted to and take the opportunity to learn different skills and uh, and mix with different types of people. Because, you know, mm. when you've worked in investment banking for so long, you can be in a situation where you tend to meet the same type of people. Right. Um, How so, are yeah, these so, people? Like, what, is there a, a typical personality of people that work in, in this area, investment banking? Um, yes, to a certain degree, right? I mean, you know, a, a lot of um, very high high achievers um you know from from great universities with um you know degrees in in mathematics and uh, and computer science and, uh, and and so on um and right. everybody interestingly wants to be a, wants to work in the front office everybody wants to be a trader everybody wants to um you know work in the you know where where the action is uh, is is happening um, right. without you know stereotyping it's um back back then anyway throughout my journey it was uh you know an extremely extremely competitive uh, competitive environment mm-hmm. and yeah 
So what is really investment banking? Because I, I've heard this term a lot, but uh, I would since you worked in it for 20 years, like you're the best person to explain it, I guess. What, what is investment banking? Um, yeah, interesting. I mean, from, from my perspective, um, typically you have retail banking, right? And that's essentially a, a facility, a structure that basically allows you know, people and businesses to to put their money in in a particular you know type of uh, um, a bank or, or, or and so on. Um, mm. With investment banking, it is slightly different. There's an opportunity for your clients and your counterparties to um, put money in in your um, you know in in various assets uh, right. that your specific uh, bank um, ideally trades in, and and it really gives you an opportunity then to you know as as a bank to uh, invest that money on behalf of your um you know of your clients but are those the normal banks uh, where you normally create your accounts and then you can put your money uh, and get some interest or is no. it like a specific bank no slightly different um yeah i mean those are retail banks typically um right. you know but yeah, I mean, those are typically retail banks where you put your money in and uh, and you hope that you get an interest because they invest it in, um, you know, significantly low risk, um, mm. you know, sort of low, low risk, um, low risk investments, uh, whereas in, in investment banking is slightly, you know, slightly higher risk, right? right. Um, you know, I work specifically in commodities derivatives and uh, and within that that space, I, you know, we were building sort of what you'd say was risk strategies for, um, you know, sort of deriv derivatives, uh, uh, um, trades or derivatives right. traders, which I'll give an example. Say if you had, you know, somebody in Brazil uh, who was a cocoa farmer and cocoa took two, three years, whatever, to harvest, um, we would build uh, um, solutions which essentially identified all of the possible reasons that could affect the the, the the size of the harvest and some of those mm -hmm. things could be anything from weather to change in regime to to anything uh, you know and wow. being able to get all of that information and, and you and build algorithms able... to predict this yes so you know part of that would be harvesting data weather data would be harvesting historical data and be using that to determine whether or not there is going to be um, you know, what is going to be the effect of, let's say, a typhoon or something wow. um, in, in the event that that happens between that, you know, that the, the, the um, you know, the period before the right. the, um, the cocoa harvest, for example. But yeah, so so that, you know, from 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 that space, it was uh, it was interesting um, spend some time doing that. I wanted to be a derivatives trader so i went and took uh, took some exams um in derivatives trading um but mm -hmm. as life would would have it i i didn't actually get an opportunity to you know got got qualified but never actually got the opportunity to um to, to participate and actually be you know and actually trade derivatives um mm -hmm. but what, what i then moved on to was managing big projects managing big teams and um, and delivering, you know, sort of big programs of, of work 
which which was equally as, as exciting because it still allowed you to engage with the the, the bankers and the business, right. uh, and and you kind of felt that you were delivering value, right? You you, you still felt that you were adding value, maybe not mm-hmm. as a trader, but as somebody that's delivering technology, for example, to help the the, the various trading desks uh, perform well. Right. I mean, I find it fascinating. I'm still thinking about what you're saying about creating models that would even take into account the change of a regime. <laughs> like, yeah. How is it even possible? Like, how accurate were these models, actually? Were they good? Well, I mean, some of the banks I worked with, I mean, I worked for about 10 different banks in the space of those years. Wow. Um, and, and they've been near the were you know, obviously successful um, through through that period. You can imagine that commodities and uh, and derivatives, especially, was uh, a really you know successful uh, um, um, you know area of investment right. banking for a very right. long time before we had the the crash. Um, you know, sort of mid 2000, 2007 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so how was that actually? You know, as an investor banker and, and working that area, how did you leave that crash? It was interesting because it actually broke when I was in holiday in Mexico with my wife and my daughter. Um, okay. So we were we were watching um, on on TV and wondering whether or not because we both work for investment banks. Um, okay. We were watching on TV and and thinking whether or not we were going to have a job when we got back. Wow. Um, <laughs> so that was interesting. So we just thought, oh. Well, let's just have a great holiday and um, think about it. <laughs> think, think about it when we get back, right? That, um, that crash was caused because of the um, the real estate bubble. No, was it the reason? Yes, yes, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Were um, you predicting this already? Was it like clear that this would happen, or not so much? Uh, it wasn't. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. I think. I think uh, the people on the ground knew. Um, if you've ever watched the film The Big Short, yeah, it's yeah, a watch re- it. really, really, really good, good film. Yeah, yeah. yeah, really good film. The people, you know, the people on the ground knew knew what what was going on to a certain extent. Um, yeah. But but it, it was just one of those things where you where you think, well, you know. The banking establishment is just too big to fail, right? There's going to right. have to be some sort of uh, uh, a help or, or something from the government if anything ever happened. But um, but yeah, no, we we were in we were in Mexico when when it all broke, um, and uh, we, we flew back to London, flew back to the UK, and I ended up. It was probably one of the more stressful periods actually because we worked, you know, seven or eight weekends in a row. So I think it's safe to say that you gained a lot of experience in the business side, right? You knew how to manage companies, what would influence a business, right? What are the factors that you should pay attention to? You certainly have much more knowledge in the business world than than I do. Did that help now when you when you started doing the um, this shift towards bootstrapping, towards building your own company? Yeah, interestingly, it did and it didn't. Um, the first company that, that I set up, or actually the second company I set up, failed miserably. Um, and it slowly failed as well. Uh, fair enough, I, I, you know, I managed big teams, I managed uh, budgets and, mm-hmm. and so on. But the difference, though, is that you don't typically have commercial awareness um, when you work in these biggest institutions because 
you commercial awareness is left to the sales teams. Right. Commercial awareness is left to the sort of marketing teams. And the reason why that happens is because you tend not to be at you know you tend not to be client facing most of the most of the time yes so all you're doing really is delivering products to people that are already incentivized to use it so it's not as if you can deliver a product and they can say we're not using this because it's not suitable yeah. Um, they will use it because it's been mandated by the organization that that's a product that they're going to use to, to perform trades, to book trades, to, to reconcile trades and so on. So in terms of knowledge of managing people and motivating people and managing budgets, yes, I had all of that experience. But in terms of marketing and advertising yeah. and, and, and so on, I didn't have that, but I didn't know that I didn't have that until we, until that yeah. startup failed. Nothing prepares you for marketing, <laughs> <laughs> for having to do marketing. It's, it's, I, it, the same happened to me, to be honest. I had no idea that most of my time would be spent actually doing marketing and trying to get customers and trying to transmit the message of what I'm building to the clients. So I, I totally <laughs> understand. So you said that you built two companies before that end up uh, not being as successful as you hoped. So tell me about this. Like, what what went through your mind to do this this shift? Uh, tell me, I'm interested in knowing if you just like quit and started or if you started on the side and then when eventually thought, okay, let's do it full time, you did it. H how was this process to go from investor banker to a bootstrapper? Great question. So, um, I interestingly, the first the first um, startup, the very first one, was actually in the health space. Where, um, we, we, I was doing that sort of part time. I was co founder. Um, okay. That's a long story. Perhaps not one for a different uh, company. You know, for a different uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah, give, but, give us the short version. <laughs> but, but but yeah, but but the founder disappeared to Dubai and and took quite a bit of money with him and uh and he was okay. not to be seen so so that that was one definitely um, one uh for <laughs> one for a different conversation and uh, for another podcast i think and i'm sure founders will learn from that a lot um wait wait, wait, wait. i it's just one question here so <laughs> was it like your friend or something you you knew yes yeah, it was a, it was, a, it was somebody that we actually worked together in banking, um, and okay. and um, we yeah we we'd worked together in in banking, and we decided we were going to you know he was building something. He came to me and said, "Hey, I'd like you to be co-founder." And we set a, a gentleman's agreement on the handshake in 2015, and mm -hmm. we started building, and it just uh, yeah it it uh, didn't quite <laughs> didn't quite work out as we expected. And, uh, and and he disappeared to to Dubai um, with your money. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's just one of <laughs> it's just one of those just one of those things. Um, you you and and this is a risk that I think a lot of founders don't actually appreciate. Um, True, mm -hmm. you know. He's the first in, person I've yeah. heard that told. I mean, I've heard, of course, you know, disagreements and co-founders maybe st stealing money, but never in the first person. You know, actually, some someone telling me that story that happened to them. Oh yes, and and the thing is, you know, when you when you work with somebody before for a few years, you kind of feel that you know them, but you don't right. really know until you 
start to <laughs> you're you're doing business <laughs> with them, um, and and it brings out different personalities. And I think um, that that was something that was new to me. It certainly was also new to me the fact that you know moving from uh, corporate to 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 you know to startup. There are a lot of people that say that they're great at, at you know at various jobs, but you mm-hmm. you pay them to realize they're not great. They're not good, in fact, and um, and that's something that can never prepare somebody who's coming from a corporate space into you know into the um, mm-hmm. into the startup world. You end up burning a lot of money kissing frogs, so to speak. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is when you um, when you come out into the startup world and you have some savings that you're going to use to push your startup forward. Right. Assuming that marketing is one of the tasks that you have to um, overcome, mm-hmm. because you've come from a corporate space, you feel that you don't have the expertise to do the marketing. So you call on other people who claim to have the marketing expertise right. and pay them to do this, uh, you know, and, and to, to perform this function for you, only to find out two months later um, that they're not, re- or three months later, actually, that right. they're not really doing the job well and they're mm. not really good at the job. But you still have to pay them and you would have paid them for their time over yeah. that period. So you and, still and feel that- a little bit scammed somehow. Oh yeah, massively scammed. I think now that I fully have, um, you know, got to grips with marketing, at least from an inbound perspective, I know exactly what type of questions to ask. Um, you know, anybody who claims that they are doing marketing or they understand marketing, yeah. mm-hmm. if they can't answer that question, those questions, then then you know, I wouldn't spend my time or my money with them. Do you think do you think it's important to first do it yourself and then hire, or it's okay to hire as long as you do a little bit more research or even like ask someone that knows marketing to do an interview for you? I think I think it's best to do it yourself. Um, just from okay. my personal experience, I didn't do it myself, and I found so many. You know, um, yeah, I spent a lot of money trying to find people trying to find the right people and uh and always being disappointed so definitely i think it's it's right for you to do it yourself and at least understand what it is that you're recruiting for because it's so nobody uh actually as a bootstrapper nobody can tell your story as well as you can yeah and and that is so important you just hiring somebody and say hey come and help us do social media marketing Mm-hmm. You know, that's just one very small aspect of it, right? And and they'll come in and they'll they'll post sort of cookie cutter posts, which isn't going to resonate with anybody. Whereas you post yourself, people yeah. will engage with it, and that's just one part of it. And then you bring somebody else in who is a specialist in SEO to help you with inbound uh, inbound leads. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's another three months before you realize that they're not really that good, or they're not using the right keywords, or the yeah, you know, or yeah. the or the blogs that they're writing aren't necessarily um, well as optimized as they should be. Right, that's another part. Or you bring yeah. somebody else in to do outbound marketing and send uh, outbound emails out. Right, you know, it would take a month, two months to realize that. Okay, they keep coming back and telling you that the open rate of this email is 90%. Great, but the click-through rate of any of the links is less than 1%, right? Yeah. 
But if you don't know what metric to actually ask them specifically about, you're essentially, I wouldn't say you're getting scammed, but but they're taking advantage of your lack of knowledge to present useless metrics to you. Mm -hmm. That makes you feel that you're going in the right direction, but in actual fact, you're not. And it's funny because, you know, in in my job uh, previously, I was a software developer and uh, society now go goes more towards you being very good in in a specific niche you are part of a big machine right so i was coding and i was becoming good at coding and learning coding but as you mentioned that happened as well to you i didn't know anything about marketing i didn't know anything about selling and and i was even interested in that so a lot of the people are not even even interested and they learn coding and they don't learn anything else but then when you go to bootstrapping, you need to learn everything. You know, it, it's interesting. It's like an intern. When an intern first gets to a company and kind of learns everything about the company, I think that's also very crucial because then when this intern wants to become maybe a CEO, he or she knows every little bit and how to do the job. And I, I think that's really important. That's what I also really like about bootstrapping because you really get to, you know, get your hands dirty and learn everything, sales, marketing, building the product, finance, everything. So I, I totally agree with you. One thing that it's hard is the mental part as well, at least for me. And in, in your case, I, I still have this question. So I, I don't know if you ever were, was able to, were able to get the, the money back, but how does this affect you mentally? How does this, like... Did you like when you your your co-founder ran away with the money? Did it take a while for you to get over it? Do you still think about it sometimes and get furious about it? Tell me about this. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the the mental aspect, um, and and just to mention what you know how you rounded off the last um, section in terms of having the ability to do everything. Absolutely, as a bootstrapper, you need to be able to do everything. And that's, mm-hmm. again, one of the reasons why I left the corporate space. I had experience in, you know, project program management and budget and finance. I had experience in coding and, and managing teams. I had so a, a wide variety of experience in terms of, you know, um, building teams, mobilizing teams. I was mobilizing teams globally and being travel, you know, I was traveling across many, many, many places to um to to set up teams and get them going so they were almost like mini companies right so yeah so broadly you have to have um expertise in this i also have design um um, skills right i can i can write you know i can put designs together I, i know a little bit about color and so on so yeah as a bootstrapper you need to know absolutely everything it's a great way to save you money um once you embrace the fact that nobody's going to come in to help you um, moving on to the other um, question that you just mentioned, which is around mental, mental how do you manage the mental um, strain, the mental stresses? There yeah. are two types of mental strains and mental stresses, right? Um, there's mental strains and stresses around just managing a startup by yourself and being, mm-hmm. you know, being the sole um, uh, person that's responsible for, for its success or failure. And that is something that, you know, even if you have a co-founder, that's not something that can be um, be shared almost. It doesn't matter how often you you speak to the co-founder about this, unless they are 50-50 and they started with you right from the start and it's equally their dream 
it's very, very difficult to, um, you know, to be able to translate the, the, the feeling, the mental stresses that you go through. Yeah. And to, to people, you know, to anybody, even your partner. Uh, so, so for me, that's one part of it. And then the other part is, and that requires grit, uh, tenacity, resilience, and just that never give up attitude. The other part of it is what you mentioned, which is around, you know, somebody disappearing with your, with your investment, not, you know, and, and, you know, nowhere to be found. Now, for me, uh, it, it was, uh, when it happened, I couldn't believe it actually happened. Um, and and um, I tried to contact um, you know this person a few times. It, it just didn't didn't work. Um, but but for me, yes, I was absolutely furious. I was um, you know I said, oh, this is you know this is. Uh, I was so 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 angry. Uh, there was no, I mean, probably one of the angriest I've been in a very very long time. But over time, you get over it, right? Over time, you kind of accept that. Hey, that's all part of the lesson, and you move on. Yeah. And I think I think also one of the things that has helped me manage some of these uh, situations, especially, especially stressful situations, is about compartmentalizing them. Right? If there's something that you can't actually do anything about, it's actually pointless. Being yeah, being that's that's very important, I would say, but very hard to do. And uh, because that's exactly it. I mean, you could, and a lot of people do, you know, take it through the rest of their lives you know they keep on thinking about it they cannot be happy they are afraid that this would happen again uh so but i think that's true that's definitely the the right attitude to think okay can i do something about it if i can let's do it if i cannot let's focus in what really matters which is a business 100 because the thing you got to realize is every ounce your business requires every ounce of your of your energy every ounce of your positive energy so any any thing that's taking that energy away from you is not helping your business and that's a really good way of of managing um any negativity yeah. it's it's really sort of putting it aside and realizing that any time spent focused on that negativity especially if you have no way of addressing it is not time you know it's, it's not doing your business uh, any good even if it's your business or your you know um it could be anything it could be your career it could be you know broken friendships any time that you spend too long processing and reprocessing and trying to yeah. understand it's just uh, it's not not a good um, good you know uh, way to spend your energy yeah definitely and i think that's a great lesson that's definitely a great lesson <laughs> you know it's hard to put your pride aside sometimes you know to be scammed by a friend mm. but in the end that's what you have to do. That's that's how you will succeed as well, both personally and also in business-wise. So that happened, you overcame it, and then you, I guess you built another one, which was still not Prello, right? Um, yes, exactly. So that, that was the second one, um, which was a a job hiring platform and interestingly and when i speak to people about this i say well yeah i spent 20 years in investment banking the typical natural progression would have been for me to have built a fintech product right um yeah but because of what we did because of what we did and the fact that we were actually using ai and c plus libraries in that way 
I felt that it was easy to move into the recruitment space and build a, a recruitment technology solution that essentially created a quantifiable value um, by matching a candidate to a particular vacancy. Um, part of the reasons I did that was throughout my period uh, in the banking space, I built and mobilized so many teams, and I actually am a specialist in building remote teams. That's kind of what I do. I built remote, I build remote distributor teams, global remote distributor teams. So for me, and, and they're not just technical people, they can be business analysts, they could be project right. managers, they could be, you know, testers, they could be uh, developers, you know, DevOps, everything, you know. So and that's why I was mentioning before that, you know, I can build mini startup companies because I have experience across majority, if not all, of the um, areas that you need within uh, building a functioning team. So because I have all of that experience I, and, and because of the challenges that I went through trying to build teams, I felt that the recruitment industry was failing, um, was failing me, was failing a lot of people who were trying to build teams. So I decided that I was going to build a platform that was um, going to optimize that process and essentially um, you just make it easier to find individuals that you wanted to work with in your team. Um, and we built that and it was targeted initially at the corporate space because the corporate space was a, a space that I knew very well, especially in investment banking. That kicked my ass, right? Uh, you, you know, and, and the problem with what happened there was that I wasn't cognizant or I wasn't aware of a, a number of things. One, I wasn't aware that the procurement cycle in the corporate space was so long. You know, if a, t if a company has just bought a recruitment solution, they're not going to be buying another one for, you know, for another three years because right. typically mm -hmm. these contracts are long-term contracts. And also, corporates typically follow each other in terms of, you know, software that they, they purchase. So if, com if a company had bought, I don't know, for example, Slack, or Zoom, for example, most of the com other companies that are similar would probably also buy Zoom because it, oh, it, you know they just follow each other. It's easier. It's easier. How do they them. know about each other? So the banking world is quite is quite small, right? You know, uh -huh. even though there are so many banks, it is quite small, and people talk. And you know, I, I, at any one time, I'd have friends in about ten different banks, and we all. <laughs> yeah. We meet up for drink or meet up for coffee. So we will know. We know. And also we use that intel to determine the price that some of these B2B SaaS businesses were 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 paying. Um, but yeah, so back to the, the to the to the story. We weren't really appreciative of the procurement cycle. We weren't appreciative of the um sort of um, herd mentality that a lot of these um, right. institutions have. And therefore, it was very difficult for us to get into, you know, with our product into the corporate space. Um, and also, what was interesting was, and this is something that I tweet about quite a lot, actually, is that the recruiters were obviously very, very much against the product. And a lot of the recruiters that we reached out to said, yeah, no, great product, but I'll never use it because you know, it's taken away the human element right. of, of hiring. Well, actually, it was enhancing the, that that process by... But what automating. was the product doing, actually? Yeah, so the product was matching candidates' resumes with job vacancies. 
So we okay. will pull information from the resume, such as their their years experience in the particular industry, um, years experience in the particular uh, language, um, and and so on. And there was also some there were also some tacit informations that we pick information that we picked up, and we matched that with the we were using um, NLP. Um, mm -hmm. And you know it was AI. It was an AI platform, right? So, and this was early in two thousand, and we started two thousand seventeen, right? So it was you know it was early then um, in yeah. terms of uh, in terms of machine learning and and so on, and and we were using you know we were matching candidates' CVs to job opportunities, mm -hmm. and we were providing a value, which essentially meant a probability that you should meet that person. And what we, we were doing, we weren't taking, you know, sort of education and, and any of that stuff into into account because we felt that created a number of biases. We, we, we actually didn't, we didn't include education in, in that process. Right. But what we included specifically was the information in the CV about the person's experience and yeah. the information in the vacancy about the experience that they were looking for. So, yeah. Um, and we we could do like six seven hundred matches in like sixty seconds, and it would provide a, a list of people that you should be speaking to based on the resumes that we process. Um, Which is something that is still used a lot now nowadays, right? Uh, this kind of screening algorithms. I think probably Google also uses that because they get so many resumes that they need something, some way to automate and expedite this process. 100% exactly. But in 2018, 2017, 2018, it probably was a little bit early um, for, you know, us introducing this into the into the corporate uh, banking uh, space. Right. Even though probably Google was already using something like this, right? Like these big tech companies. Exactly. But in the tech space. So mm -hmm. that, that was the problem. And a lot of people look at banks and think, oh, wow, banks are, are making a lot of money and so on. Yes. But but not necessarily um, implementing technology in HR or implementing yeah. technology in that space. Mm -hmm. Implementing technology in trying to optimize um, trading strategies in, 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 and increase profits, absolutely, but not necessarily in, in human resources. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, we went through that process. Um, it didn't work. We pivoted across to, to startups, and that was where Prello really started to form even though we didn't know that at the time we were basically using information and intelligence to identify startups that were you know in, maybe interested in in hiring and that was yeah. how we were trying to reach out to them but but the information that we had we we didn't appreciate it enough until other companies and other founders were coming to us and saying well can you share this information in a spreadsheet because we would be interested in using this to identify key decision makers in startups that have just been recently funded so that we can approach them. And we were providing this information for free because our, our target audience, we're not startup founders looking to sell products. We, our target audience were, you know, startup founders that were looking to hire. Right. You know, so the business model that we had, however, was a SaaS subscription-based uh, model. But the issue we had was that the volume of hires in the startup space just it's wasn't high hard. enough for us to be yeah. able to make any kind of money out of it, really. So, yeah. So and, how, and, how much did you did you start selling anything? Did you get uh, any company 
paying? Like, no. I, I'm interested in knowing how did not you get one. this? Not, not one. Not one. They they tested it. They said it was great. They uh, they asked for um, uh, features, which we we made changes. But when we actually asked for you know payment, it was right. it didn't happen. Um, and that was the, the the challenge. And this is why I I say that you know you need to be speaking to your customers at a very early stage. And this was a, a lesson actually that we took into building Prello because when we started with Prello, we'd already had some validation by the fact that people were already asking us for some of this data. But moving on, when we actually started building the product, we had beta partners. We had people that we had already identified mm. as people that were going to be using or needed this product so we could use them to properly validate the product as we were building it and that was a big right. difference and it's also important although right to ask for money from the start right because in, even in your first version of the product like say the companies they, they they tried it out they gave you feature suggestions but then in the end they didn't pay right so is it also important to somehow ask for money or at least for a commitment like, would you pay for this kind of questions? 100%. But what, what we did, actually, we went at, um, super proactive, super aggressive with this. We actually put a price on it, even at the MVP stage. So when we right. released it in MVP, we put a price on it, which we didn't do with the, with the um, hiring platform. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to use it, you had to pay. We also had a free version. But the free version, we made sure that it wasn't rich enough in in features right. for you to be able to do anything with it mm -hmm. so we put a price on it and that really was a massive thing for us to mm -hmm. to in order to generate you know initial um set of um, revenue right. and customers so so the idea of prello is to help solopreneurs to find potential clients is that it C correct exactly so so prello is really and and this is helping uh, solopreneurs and um, early stage founders identify um, clients in the startup space who right. have funding. Because there's nothing worse than speaking to a startup that's not funded and you're trying to sell them a service that they can't pay for. Right. So you have a huge database that you keep it up to date and then you use the same technology that you developed for for the hiring uh an HR product you built, you use the same technology, you just shifted a little bit towards finding leads for uh, solopreneurs. We rewrote it pretty much, right? So the first platform, hiring platform was in Angular, and this one is in um, Vue.js and, and uh, PHP Laravel. Right. We, but we, the algorithm is the same, isn't it? Like to match to match the some the of the algorithm is the same okay. most of it we've um we've built slightly differently um in order okay. for us to i mean we literally built prello in three weeks or four weeks um wow. okay. we, we leveraged the fact that we could um use the data that we already had and just updated it but mm -hmm. but we were very clear that we weren't going to get stuck into building you know really complex uh, machine learning uh, algorithms because it didn't help us the first time and it's very very easy as technologists to disappear into this rabbit hole of optimizing yeah. precisions and yeah. uh, and and so on that you end up just not you know delivering a product that people wanted to use so um so yeah so yeah to answer your question 
We used data that we previously had, we enhanced that data, and then we delivered a new product, new stack on top of that data. Mm-hmm. How many people uh, were you building the product, the MVP? It was three of us, um, and it was, yeah, it was crazy. Um, and it was a lot of long hours. We literally just, mm-hmm. it was funny because it was at, it was in May, and we thought, okay, we're, this is the end of the road, you you know, all my, my teammates. And we thought, right, we're going to shut down, and um, I'm going to perhaps take some time off and just lick my wounds, right? <laughs> But then I thought over a weekend, and I thought, well, We've got all this data and we've got people asking us for information. Why don't we just build a platform on top of this and try and see whether people are interested? So we just gave ourselves three weeks and said, right, we're going to build something. It's going to be crap. It's not going to be that great. But we're going to put it out there and see whether people are interested. And it, it, it happened. And, um, and, and yeah, and we were able, to, we were able to, to, to generate revenue. We were able to then start to push it. The issue that, that obviously you have when you release something that is MVP is there are a lot of uh, bugs, obviously. And, um, but what, what that does is it, it means that the people that report the bugs are people who have paid for the product. And this is why I say to a lot of people that when you build a product and people buy it and it's not quite 100%, because they've bought it, they will feed back to you. And it's your opportunity to then use that feedback to improve the product. When you're giving the product away for free, people don't care whether it has bugs on it. They probably just stop using it because they haven't, right. they've not expended any cash to, to mm-hmm. acquire it. So they just stop using it. But when they pay for it, then they will respond. Then they will say, well, this isn't working. Why isn't working? I feel like I've wasted my money and so on. And what that does as a founder, as an entrepreneur, is it tests as well your um, your business ops processes. Do you actually have a process that can manage um, you know, feedback? Do you have a process that can respond to, to, to customers in, in a, you know, a decent amount of, of, you know, within right. a reasonable amount of time. So these are, these are all things that people typically overlook yeah. um, when, when they build a product and release it for free. That's a very valid point. I've never thought of that. If people are paying for it, they will, of course, demand another level of quality and they will give you more feedback. How do you decide which features to actually implement and which not to implement because you know they are paying maybe a big customer suggests a feature that only fits them and doesn't fit the others how do you define which ones you should uh, work on or not that's really good 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 question uh, tiago so one of the things that we did and, and and i say this a lot even on twitter you need to build a feedback machine feedback loops when you build a product Um, mm-hmm. You can do that manually. And one of the things that we did manually was to create a Slack channel. So when we built the product, we created a Slack channel and we created a process of inviting the people who paid for the product into the Slack channel. Whenever okay. they came into the Slack channel, they, they, they there was a section there where they could provide feedback. And when they provided the feedback, people within the Slack channel will vote on that feedback. And based on the vote of that, that will determine which ones that we've, we, we, um, we addressed first. Yeah, so from that perspective, it doesn't, it's very, very clear what, you know, what it is that, that people want, because one, they've paid for it. And, and two, they've also voted 
um, on on the issues that they yeah. you know yeah. that they're struggling with. Isn't it problematic to have all of your customers in one single Slack channel <laughs> because they they might even be competitors, right? Yeah, they might be competitors, but they typically wouldn't have discussions about uh, about each other's businesses. And I guess if they do, then, you know, there's not very, I mean, they could easily do that on Twitter as well, right? Um, mm -hmm. they, you know, I think we're just providing a medium for them to be able to voice their frustrations on the product. Right. Um, what's interesting, though, is it's not a scalable process. Um, and you know initially you'd get people who are providing feedback but after a while that that dies down um mm -hmm. and that's either because you've addressed a lot of the issues um right. but then you need to have there aren't there you know there are some customers who would not want to go onto slack so you need to get to them via video com video call you need to get right. to them via a form or something so but majority of them are available on on uh, on on Slack, and we use that quite quite a bit. It's, but but it's yeah, very interesting approach. Yeah, I've uh, never thought of that to bring all of your clients into Slack. But yeah, it makes total sense. And uh, now that I think about it, yeah, there's many other companies and products that do that. For instance, Buy Me a Coffee, they have a Discord channel where people can just go there and uh, yes, give feedback, and they end up creating a little community, which is also a, a plus. Um, so you you build this product. Did you, all, all of the members, so I guess the, you said three members that's built it? Yeah, so, so we had front-end developer, full-stack developer, and we had, um, right. you know, DevOps um, guys that were helping us with some DevOps as well. Are they co-founders or did you hire them? I hired them. I, I typically um, like to, to hire people to come on board. Okay. So how much would that cost? Because that's already... To do so as a bootstrapper, you really need to have some money on the side, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, you need to you need to have some some savings. You need to have some money, um, and, uh, and and but but more importantly, you need the 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 people. You know, you need the people who have um, the skills in order to be able to allow you to actually work on the business rather than in the business because that's that that you know that there's subtle there's a subtlety there and, mm -hmm. and you can get really drawn into writing code you know and and not be able to 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 have your head up and uh, and actually see how how am i going to take this product to market what are my distribution channels right. who are the people that i need to be engaging with to form partnerships or whatever it is mm -hmm. that you need to do um, but yeah you need some you need some money and again you know bootstrapping you can do in multiple ways right you could hire some people to help you with some parts of it that you think will allow you or give you the freedom to be able to work on the other parts um and and getting these people on board really has helped me to be able to focus on on the marketing side and just get to understand mm -hmm. a little bit better in terms of marketing right were they full-time employees no no they, they were all fractional um guys who came on and did a couple of hours uh, okay. you know a couple of hours a week so um and yeah i mean you know you have to be clever in in terms of your budget and this is what i was mentioning yeah. before that you know you just need to understand how to manage a budget uh, and you need to understand you know how to motivate people uh, as well to to keep them yeah. uh, interested 
and also how to organize this, right? Because, you know, in, in my side, I didn't have the money to, to hire other people, but I guess there's other bootstrappers they do. So how do you organize this? How, how do you, like, do you have regular meetings where every freelancer is, you know, present, you like stand-ups or something, or do, are you like the bridge that connects each member and says, okay, you should do this because person A is doing that. Like, how do you organize the process? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of what, what I do, as I say, it's um, being the link between everybody, making sure that I know what's happening, what needs to be done, why it needs to be done. Um, it was interesting because also a lot of the conversations typically happened on Slack. Um, okay. we, we rarely sort of had team, team uh, meetings where we get on calls and so on. So a lot of the, the conversations that we had happened on Slack and we managed everything on Slack. But interestingly, as you mentioned that, We've, we're adopting a slightly different um, approach now. And, and my dream is is hopefully coming true where we actually have a completely completely distributed team um, where, you know, I have um, somebody working in Boston, I have somebody else working in um, Germany, mm -hmm. and I have another person working in Ukraine. So in order to make that all work, there is a need to have a, you know, an agile board and be able to create the the tasks that are necessary in order to move the business forward and keep people mm -hmm. aligned. Now that we've done that, we're just moving to that process now. Um, there, we've introduced you know a, a new communication strategy, which involves uh, team meetings and one-to-ones and so on. So we're kind of, it's funny to say, we're kind of growing up now a little bit, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, but, okay, but when you built... Prello, right? Like when you you had the first idea and you said, okay, let's take three three weeks to to shift it a little bit. How was this process? Like, how did you distribute the tasks? Did you have like one meeting with everyone? How, it was how daily. It was daily. We were we were changing things every you know very very frequently. It, it was um it was a conversation. You've got to remember they also came through the the recruitment tech business. Right, um, so we already so, know each other, kind of thing. exactly. So they had a, a you know good understanding of how each other worked, and also the skill set that they had were complementary. So you know when somebody was purely on the front end, somebody else was purely on the back end, and I was purely on the design side of things, right? So mm -hmm. I would put together all of the, the the user journeys, the workflows, and how things should be, and so on. And we would just you know continually just work. And we did many, many hours. So I think for those three weeks, we, you know, everybody was, um, yeah, I'd say pretty much full time um, for, for three weeks to get the product, to get the product right. done. Mm -hmm. Got it. So you got the product done and you already had a couple of potential clients, mm -hmm. right? So I guess, did they join immediately and they said, okay, let's, let's try it out and they start paying? Or was it yeah, hard I mean, they joined there? straight away. I mean, yeah, absolutely. They 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 joined straight away once we once we built the once we finished the beta, we got them to test, and then we we launched the MVP, and they joined and became pay, paying customers. Is it a subscription um, model too? It's a subscription model, but what we actually did, which was interesting, and I don't mention this too much, is we used lifetime deals in order in order to generate initial mm. uh, revenue, and and. And you've got to be clever when you when you're playing with lifetime deals because 
you, you need to make you need to do some analysis and i've i've tweeted about this a lot in terms of understanding what the churn rate is with your industry and also understanding what what is that what are the chances that any you know what's the what's a life span of a particular customer that comes onto your platform and therefore charge accordingly um that a, a price that represents what that lifespan is based on your original monthly uh, subscription um mm -hmm. so that you don't get into a situation where you are undercharging for your product and not making any profit so that that was a good way for us to identify um, who was really interested in the product because it was almost as if they were paying, you know, sort of six months in in advance or six months mm -hmm. upfront, right? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Based yeah. on the on on the um, attrition rate or rather the churn rate of any type similar type of product in in that industry, and we use that model to essentially then create a, a price for the lifetime deal. Which then allowed us to get people on it. It also allowed us to test the messaging, right? Allowed us to test the messaging. Allowed us to test the business ops. You know, right, how would right. people use the business, use the product? How yeah. would they feedback? You know, we were basically had people feeding back on an MVP and helping us improve the product, mm -hmm. having paid for the, you know, having paid for a lifetime yeah. deal. That lifetime deal is not going to be forever. It's not forever, but it was something that we used to to accelerate right. features. Yeah, no, and, that's very very smart, and uh, and it allowed you, as you said, to create to build the product, iterate over it with people that already were invested on it. So that's that's really really smart. And um, how do you get new customers? Is it is it easy once you have already some on board? Do they like just talk with each other? And it's more organic, or do you have to do some extra marketing to get some uh, other clients to join? Yeah, so I mean, with with clients joining, a lot of clients have joined have come from Twitter, mm -hmm. and um, some from Facebook groups as well. Uh, but what I've found is, you know, when I tweet, my you know, people, you know, sometimes it it, it does well, goes viral, and so on, and and we get you know we get customers coming by via that route mm -hmm. um also there's some they, they check your profile and then yes. they 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 find your product or Correct. do you tweet and advertise your product in your no tweets? i never ever advertise my product ever okay it, it, it's just not for me because i'm i'm not a salesperson it just doesn't feel authentic to me to okay. go out there and say hey we've got this lead generation tool why don't you use it blah 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 it just doesn't sound, it's just not me. So for me, and I say this to a lot of founders, is more people are more interested in your founder journey. People are more interested in your story. Right. And um, and people connect more with your story. People will remember the fact that you said, oh, I had a co-founder who, who ran away with your money yeah. <laughs> before you started your this business. And they think, oh, wow, yeah, that's interesting. And and they'll connect more with that than me saying, "Hey, go and try this lead generation platform because it's the best." You know, that's not. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so for me, just sharing my story, sharing my journey um, over the last six months, I think has been really a good way to connect with people yeah, authentically, um, and created friends actually that I've met on you know on on Twitter, for example. It, it's been really good. Whereas the first platform um, or second platform we did we didn't really use social media and we didn't really engage with people in the same way that i'm doing now 
and right. it felt we, you know, I write about it on Twitter as well. I felt a little bit isolated, actually. Yeah, definitely. I I definitely agree, and I, I totally understand. I, I felt the same, and I think Twitter in that sense is really good. You get to meet a lot of people in doing similar stuff and in a similar journey, and uh, you don't feel so alone for sure. Mm. Um, so walk me down the numbers now. You are you profitable already? Are you uh, no not money? quite profitable yet? Um... I mean, the first month we, you know, we did, I think, five, just over $500. Second month, mm -hmm. we did just under $2,000. Third month, wow. we did just over $2,000. Fourth month, um, I think, fourth month is January. We, we've gone down a little bit in January, right? Just, mm -hmm. I think, about $1,500 in, in January. But Januarys are typically slow, and also we had to pull back on the marketing quite a bit because well, I, I'm basically in, in a transition phase at the moment. My lead developer is moving on. You probably saw my tweet yesterday oh, and yeah, like last yeah. week. Yeah, mm -hmm. so my lead developer is moving on, and over the last, I'd say even the last two months or so, he's been sort of less and less available. So I've just yeah. got a new team uh, onboarded now and we're just bedding in which is what i was mentioning to you before we've got somebody in the in the ukraine somebody right in uh, in germany another person in boston so we're just about to start pressing um the the, the gas um from this month february right. a lot of uh, activity is going to be done on outbound uh, marketing now because we've never done any outbound marketing up until now mm -hmm. so um yeah so that's going to be interesting What's your uh, MRR goal for uh, 2022? MRR goal for 2022. If we can get to, to 7K MRR mm. by December, that will be absolutely amazing. Um, I, I think for me, it's just really trying to work on the, the, the necessary distribution channels for us to be able to get to that goal. Mm -hmm. Are you confident you, you'll get there? Oh yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. We just need to make the right, you know. We just need to make the right, the right decisions, and uh, and uh, yeah, just keep pushing forward. What keeps you up at night? What makes you, you know, wake <laughs> up and think, okay, damn, maybe I, I should go back to investing banking, or <laughs> does those thoughts come to you, or whatever? Um, no, not 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 anymore. Um, investment banking world, I've kind of left behind now. But what does keep me up at night, though, is trying to find a template, a blueprint for the marketing strategy that is repeatable. That's what's keeping me up at night. Because I think once we find that, then everything is just formulaic, right? It's just a formula then. Because then you can say, if I spend seven hours on, on marketing this week, we will get X amount of money in return. Does that make sense? Right, right, yes. That is what's keeping me up at night. And, and once we're able to identify what that is, we can just ste step on that gas and say, okay, it's just now a process of scaling. So in short, if somebody was to ask this, the answer would be finding product market fit, I think is is uh, mm. is is what keeps me up at night. But I mean, don't you think you already have? Because you already have happy customers, right? Yes, but it's um, 
I think I think it's more. I think product market fit is a little bit more because I think product market fit would would demonstrate that you're growing at something like 20-30% month a month. That for me is product market fit. Isn't that more branding? That uh, I don't know because I, I totally see w what you're saying and totally understand because, for instance, in your case, it's it seemed that you were growing and then in January it kind of went down a little bit. And it's always frustrating, right? Because you you have clients, you have people that are happy with it, you have people that are paying for it, mm -hmm. but you don't see it grow every every month, right? Correct. Thirty percent, forty percent, whatever. And uh, one would expect that if there's people enjoying it, why isn't it growing, right? I mean, and and it's the same for my projects. I see people using it, and I think, okay, I mean, people enjoy it. It's it's because it's good, and then I think it's either it's not good enough that a lot of people want to use it or it's the marketing or it's the market and there's a lot of products. So I don't know, in, in this sense, how to scale, how to, to take it to the next, you know, mm -hmm. kind of hockey stick growth is where I struggle the most. Yeah, so for me, I think it's very simple because um, we haven't done any outbound marketing. Everything has been inbound and we know exactly the channels that we've, we've used. I think when you start to do outbound marketing, fingers crossed, you will start to see a massive difference in the amount of growth that's coming in. Um, and then, then you can be in a position to scale to then say, okay, we've done, I don't know, 10 hours of outbound marketing this, this month and it's increased our growth by X, you know, <laughs> that, that then you can multiply and say, okay, now I need, somebody to come in and do outbound yeah. marketing full-time then that is when you start to see scale right because now you have a formula yeah. that you can replicate so for that, me i have a formula for inbound marketing um but i can't i don't want to scale i don't need to scale it just yet i need mm -hmm. to just focus on trying to find a formula for outbound marketing because personally i think the outbound marketing is perhaps not perhaps is definitely one that is in the short term, going to generate the most impact. Right. So, what what is the difference between inbound and outbound marketing? Um, so, from a from a sort of rudimentary my my rudimentary knowledge on this, so outbound marketing is typically you sending out information or something to a group, a list, or a um, uh, an audience with a particular call to action. Mm -hmm. So you're saying an email to a, a list to say, hey, we've built this new platform that's going to be amazing for you. We think that it will save you X. Click below to join the platform. Mm -hmm. you're, you know, whereas inbound marketing is a little bit different. You're just subliminally um, putting information out there. Like you're writing a blog, for example, and writing a blog about, you know how can you optimize your lead generation funnel or how can you find key decision makers in startups what are the key things that you would look for in a startup mm. that's re generating revenue and putting those types of blogs out there waiting for google to index them right. and right. appearing on a google search that's an inbound strategy right. which basically then means that people are coming to you without you having to directly... Passive user-client acquisition. Exactly. So you are trying not to get the formula for 
inbound or outbound? Outbound at the moment. Okay. Out, what, what are you doing to get to this formula? What experiments are you doing? We're going to be experimenting with um, reach on on places like LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of sending out email. Well, in emails, I think is what they call it on LinkedIn, where you just mm -hmm. um, send a message to people who you think right. are in your um, demographic, where you sort of say, "Hey, you know, uh, we've built Prello. Uh, we think you as a founder looking for um, collaboration with other funded uh, startups could mm -hmm. make use of this. So that type of outbound uh, outreach is certainly something that we're going to be experimenting with starting okay. from this month. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of experimenting. Uh, that's something that I also found here in this bootstrapping journey. I mean, there's no one size fits all solution. Every founder needs to experiment until they find what works for them. So um, I wish you all the best with your experiments, Olu, and I, I, I hope to, and we'll definitely, the wannabe entrepreneurs will definitely follow your journey, building Prello, trying to, to find product market fit. Um, and uh, as, a, as a last question for you, let's say that there's one bootstrapper starting now, having an idea, What would be your one advice for them to start? The things that you, you've done and you, you realize, okay, I should have done it that way instead. What, what is that? What is this advice? Uh, a couple of uh, advice, really. Right. One, if you have an idea, go on to Google Trends and find out, you know, how are people searching for this type of, um, for this idea that you, you have? Mm -hmm. What does that look like from a trend perspective? The other is to look at: Are there any competitors in this field? Where, where, you know, where are they? Who are their their customers? And and how competitive is that industry? There are various tools that you can use to to do this um, do this quick analysis. Mm -hmm. So I maintain to people: 10% idea, 90% uh, investigation, and uh, and okay. trying to find customers. All right. Do a little market research. Yeah, I think that's really smart and it's a great tip. Olu, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to get to know you and to get to know your story. And I'm sure that we had a lot to talk about as well. Maybe in the next session we can speak more about what happened with uh, with your <laughs> co-founder. I think that that's probably an interesting story. But uh, until then, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for your time. Thanks very much, Tiago. Really appreciate you having me and I uh, look forward to being invited again. Yeah, for sure. And I will uh, link Prello and Olu's Twitter profile in the show notes so that the listeners can go and check it out. And um, yeah, this was another interview. If you like this kind of interviews, if you like to know more about stories of other bootstrappers, other entrepreneurs, go to wannabe-entrepreneur.com. And uh, I have interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs already with fabulous stories that you can, and I've learned a lot from them as well. So make sure to check that out. This was another one of the entrepreneur. See you next time.